millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Zdravstvutia and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 30, Ivan the Terrible, part 2. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so last time out we took a high-level look at the political and geopolitical landscape in Western Europe, taking in the Age of Discovery, the Renaissance and religious upheaval. We then moved eastwards and got a brief glimpse of the completely different geopolitical situation in Russia, and its neighbouring lands. And we then finished off by covering the early part of the reign of Russia's first Tsar, Ivan IV, from 1533 and the Regency through to the 1550s and the establishment of his personal rule. So this week we're going to continue Ivan's journey, and after last week's pronunciation flip-flopping, I've decided that from now on it will be Ivan's journey and not Ivan's, which will encompass territorial expansion, growing autocracy, numerous wars, murders, purges and massacres, all washed down with a large dose of paranoia and mental instability. So hold tight, because interesting times are ahead. But before we actually start on that narrative, let's take a quick look at the actual name Ivan the Terrible. So in Russian... Ivan's nickname, or sobriquet, was Grozny, or Grozny, which is spelt in the Roman alphabet G-R-O-Z-N-Y, and which, at the time, was correctly translated into English as terrible. But you see, in the 16th century uh, English, the word terrible meant inspiring fear or terror, dangerous, powerful, formidable, and it didn't have the more modern connotations we now associate with the word, such as defective or evil. And so it has been suggested that perhaps a better modern-day translation would have been Ivan the Formidable or Ivan the Awesome. But, and as we'll see, I'm not sure that either of those descriptions quite fit the bill. But anyway, for the time being, that's enough semantic quibbling. It's time to crack on and do some history of Russia. 
So we left Ivan on the cusp of implementing the third element of a three-point plan that was designed to increase the power of the sovereign, i.e. his power, build Russia's influence and trade, and then sort out the numerous Golden Horde successor states and expand Russia's territory. We saw in the last episode that point number one had gone okay, and that point number two had been a bit of a damp squib, apart from the limited amount of trade that resulted from Russia's relationship with the English Muscovy Company. So let's now investigate how Ivan got on with the final piece of his jigsaw, whilst noting that he would revisit points one and two with a vengeance later on in his reign. So the Tsar had actually taken some pre-territorial expansion steps back in the late 1540s and early 1550s, when he made overtures to the Cossacks that lived to the south, southeast and southwest of Russian territory. Now I don't want to disappear down a rabbit hole, or several rabbit holes, and spend the next five to ten minutes going on about the Cossacks, as I plan to do a separate episode on them once this overall narrative is complete. But I think we need a brief description of who they were and why Ivan wanted them on his side. So very briefly then, the Cossacks, and the word Cossack is derived from the Turkic term Kazakh, and that means free man or wanderer, were an amalgam of semi-independent Tatar groups and Slavic peasants or criminals who had escaped from penury and punishment in Poland, Lithuania and Russia. And, just in case you're wondering, the country of Kazakhstan gets its name from the same root word. So Ivan needed the Cossacks on side to protect his southern borders as a kind of semi-official buffer state and as a useful addition to his armed forces. Best to have the Cossacks inside the tent, you know, rather than outside, you know. In return for their support, Russia sent them money and weapons and tolerated their independent way of life. And the first evidence of this cooperation surfaces in 1549 when Ivan ordered the Don Cossacks to attack the Crimean Khanate, which at the time had been stirring up a bit of trouble. Then in 1551, further precautionary steps were taken when various other local Tatar groups on the borders of Kazan were incentivized i.e. bribed, or threatened, to keep out of the way if, i.e. when, Russia decided to go on the offensive in the region. And the reason for all of this forward planning was that, no surprise, Ivan had decided to attack and conquer two of the most important, and it has to be said the nearest Khanates, Kazan and Astrakhan. Kazan first because it lay immediately to the east of Russia, and then Astrakhan because of its position on the Volga data. There's also a story, stroke rumour, that Ivan wanted to capture Astrakhan because it was said to be the site of the Fountain of Youth. I reckon this is unlikely, seeing as he was only in his early 20s, but, as they say, you never know. Anyway, the campaign against Kazan started in June 1552 and the capital fell on the 2nd of October after a series of bloody sieges. The city's fortifications were raised, much of the local population was massacred and those that weren't were deported, many Russian prisoners and slaves were released, 
and Ivan celebrated this victory by building several churches with oriental features, most famously St. Basil's Cathedral in Red Square in Moscow, which is the one you often see with all of the different coloured onion-shaped domes. And then between 1554 and 1556, it was Astrakhan's turn, and once again, Ivan's forces were victorious, and once again, general mayhem and carnage ensued. And after the fall of these two senior Khanates, which incidentally marks the first time that the Rus or the Russians had defeated and annexed a non-Russian state, the other regional leaders saw which way the wind was blowing, and let it be known that in the future they wouldn't be causing any trouble. And two of them, the Khan of Sibir and the Khan of Nogai, publicly pledged their allegiance to Ivan. And this was because they wanted the Tsar's backing, as both were caught up in the midst of their own internal power struggles. And Ivan said, sure, no problem, but show me some money. Which they did, but it really wasn't as much as he'd been promised. And so Ivan decided that because he really couldn't trust them, he wasn't going to get involved. Which, either directly or indirectly, resulted in the Khan of Sabir being replaced by his cousin, and the Nogai Khan going on to bear a long-standing grudge that would, in a small way, come back to bite the Russians. So by 1556, the balance of power on the Eurasian steppe had been fundamentally altered in Russia's favour, and via its new stronghold on the Volga, Astrakhan, the Tsar was able to establish new trade routes to the Middle East and the Caucasus, and embark on further expansion eastwards. And so on those foundations, two years later, in 1558, and also possibly thinking that this buffer zone stroke empire-building business was a walk in the park, Ivan kicked off two further initiatives. First off, he issued patents to various merchant trading families. Uh, the most notable of these were the Stroganovs. And yes, they're the same Stroganovs who would go on to invent or introduce the famous beef dish of the same name. Which, coincidentally, I'm actually going to try cooking tonight. So I'll let you know in the next episode what I think to beef stroganoff. Never had it before. Anyway, the Stroganovs and others were to build forts, open trading routes and effectively start colonising parts of Siberia. And in particular, the sparsely inhabit inhabited parts that were well away from the Khan of Sibir. And then secondly, and in hindsight disastrously, the Tsar decided to have another go at getting access to the Baltic coast, thereby plunging Russia headfirst into the Livonian War, which would last on and off for the next 25 years. Now again, unlike so many events in Ivan's lifetime, the Livonian War probably warrants a number of standalone episodes, but for now... I'll just describe things at the rough sketch level. Okay, so we've, we've mentioned Livonia and the Livonian Knights quite a few times in previous episodes, so I think it's time that we found out where exactly was Livonia and who exactly ran it. So, get your atlases out or look at a globe and look up where the Baltic Sea is, just below Finland, and you'll find three smallest countries of from top to bottom, geographically and alphabetically, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. 
and in the mid-16th century, Livonia was roughly where Estonia and Latvia are today. And whilst it was mainly settled by indigenous Finnish and Baltic tribes, it was ruled by the Livonian Knights, an offshoot of the Teutonic Knights, who had long been a thorn in Poland's and Lithuania's sides. And talking of Poland and Lithuania, and remember they'd been in an on-again, off-again union, mainly on, since 1385. Well, the start of the Livonian War caused some understandable nervousness on the part of the Lithuanians, who then looked to their Western partner for greater cooperation and support, which culminated in the 1569 Union of Lublin, effectively joining the countries at the hip and forming the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Okay, so that's the background. Anyway, let's get back to the war. So the Tsar's invasion of Livonia started off with a bang, and his army enjoyed a string of military successes, most notably at the battles of Dorpat and Narva, which saw the effective collapse of the Livonian regime and led to a degree of Russian domination and control. And so it looked like Ivan had a success on his hands, but the war hadn't just unsettled Lithuania, and before long... Russia would be opposed by the newly formed Commonwealth, that's Poland and Lithuania, plus Denmark and Sweden, all of whom were determined to protect their own spheres of influence in the Baltic region and halt Russia's Western expansion. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And during the 1660s, it was this opposition, coupled with a number of other factors, which must have made Ivan think that perhaps he'd bitten off more than he could chew. And those other factors, well, one of them was domestic, which I'll get onto in a minute or two, but the other one fell into the bracket of those things that military strategists throughout the ages had been, and would continue to be, blindsided by. You see, the early part of the decade saw several years of continued drought in Russia, which in the 1500s was a really serious concern. I mean, even if you just had one year where you had a shortage of rainfall, that would be really serious. But now the land turned to dust and the crops started to wither and eventually they failed. So now Ivan was up a certain creek without a paddle because in normal times he could have perhaps reached out to his neighbours for extra supplies of grain and other foodstuffs. But there were two fairly obvious reasons as to why he couldn't ask for or expect any help. As we know, kicking off the Livonian War had spooked the Lithuanians, and neither they nor their friends the Poles 
were hardly likely to provide extra grain supplies, even if they had any, or any other kind of assistance to a belligerent enemy who was stirring up trouble on their doorsteps. And then secondly, and crucially, the war had also alarmed the two countries which, together with the Hanseatic League, controlled the Baltic trading routes, Denmark and Sweden. And so, together, they collectively decided to establish a near-total naval blockade, effectively putting a stop to exports, and more importantly, imports. And so, with no one close at hand to realistically turn to for help, and with no ships able to dock at the Baltic ports, famine started to stalk the Russian land. And against this backdrop of growing tensions in Livonia and crop failures and food shortages in Russia, Ivan, who had remained in Moscow throughout the Livonian campaign, was not doing so well on a personal level. In the spring of 1560, his wife, Anastasia, who some observers believe had a stabilising and calming influence on the Tsar, became ill. Now, no one at the time knew what with, but by the August of that year, she was dead. And various sources report that immediately afterwards, Ivan suffered a severe mental and emotional collapse. And then a darker, more paranoid side of his character kicked in. His wife had been poisoned. Yes, that was it. And Ivan knew who the perpetrators were. It was those scheming boyars. They'd never liked him. They'd treated him and his poor deaf brother Yuri terribly, in the modern sense of the word, back during the Regency. And now they were going to pay. Now, there was no solid evidence for either the poisoning or for the finger to be pointed at the boyars, points I'll revisit in a minute. But the Tsar didn't need evidence, and with no one able to calm him down or at least say, stop for a moment and just think this through, a number of the nobles were arrested, questioned, tortured, and then executed. And viewed through the lens of hindsight, if hindsight has a lens, we will see that it was this incident that marked a defining point in Ivan's life that really sees his transition from a fairly normal, atypical kind of Russian leader into something more despotic, tyrannical, dark, and, well, has to be said, terrible. But I mentioned evidence. So, in the late 20th century, a group of archaeologists and forensic experts examined Anastasia's remains, and they discovered high levels of mercury in her hair, which could have been symptomatic of poisoning, perhaps proving that Ivan was right to suspect foul play. However, alternatively, the evidence of high levels of mercury could indicate its use as a treatment for an illness. So, poison or medicine, we just don't know. But just because the Tsar may have been right, it didn't stop his paranoia. Because at around the same time, with the war in Livonia becoming increasingly logjammed, one of Ivan's senior commanders, Prince Andrei Kurbsky, defected to the Lithuanians. And the reason for his defection was that Ivan had failed to renew his command, and so Kurbsky, who was probably aware of the recent Boyar executions and Ivan's state of mind, decided not to hang around for the 5am knock on the door and jump ship which is all well and good for Kerbsky, but his escape and defection, particularly as he would go on to command Lithuanian troops, defeat a Russian army, and capture several chunks of Russian territory, 
ratcheted, ratcheted up Ivan's psychosis levels to DEFCON 1. In December 1564, Ivan left Moscow and travelled about 75 miles in a northeasterly direction to an old royal hunting lodge at a place called Alexandrova Sloboda, and from there he sent two letters to the boyars and clergy back in Moscow. The first one accused them all of treason and embezzlement, and the second announced his abdication as Tsar because of their treason and embezzlement. So we don't know if there was any evidence to support these charges. Most historians think that they were baseless and that the whole thing was simply a power play on Ivan's part designed to spread fear, panic and blame. And that's mainly because of what happened next. The court in Moscow was paralysed. Nobody was brave or stupid enough to take any kind of decisive action except to send envoys to Alexandrova Sloboda and beg Ivan to return to the capital. Ivan agreed to return, of course he did, on one condition, that he was granted absolute power, which effectively meant that he would be able to condemn, torture, confiscate lands from and kill whomever he wanted, without interference from the Boyar Council or the Church. And to control and administer this new regime, which was named the Oprichnina, in 1565, Ivan established an elite force, eventually that would eventually grow to 6,000 strong, of political police, stroke bodyguards, stroke murderous thugs, who were called the Oprichniki. And both words, Oprichnina and Oprichniki, uh, were, came from the Russian word Oprich, meaning except or apart from. So the Oprichnina was set up as a separate state within a state and was based roughly where the old principality of Novgorod had been located. Those outside this area who lived in the Zemstchina, the land or the exterior, were considered to be the enemy, although living within the confines of the Oprichnina itself offered no guarantee of safety. 1566 saw the first wave of persecutions, first in Suzdal and then in Moscow, during which Ivan, via the Oprichniki, executed, exiled or forcibly tonsured prominent members of the Boyar class on questionable accusations of conspiracy. And among those who were executed were the Metropolitan Philip and the prominent warlord Alexander Gorbatyshusky. And from that point, the madness spread to all regions of Russia before plumbing its absolute depths during the massacre of Novgorod in 1470, which saw tens of thousands of casualties and innumerable acts of extreme and violent cruelty. But before long, and as usually happens, the movement ran out of enemies and it started to turn in on itself. And then, crucially, by 1472, had lost the trust of Ivan himself, who may have eventually recognised that the monster he had created was becoming the problem rather than actually solving the problem, or the perceived problem. Plus, whilst all of this had been going on, other externally driven problems had started to manifest themselves, problems which even the Tsar recognised couldn't be ignored. 
So back in late 1568, the Ottomans, uh, who had got wind that Ivan was otherwise engaged, decided that they were going to add the Tsar's recently conquered territory of Astrakhan to their own growing empire. And whilst they were at it, they were going to build a canal that would link the Volga and Don rivers. So in 1569, they laid siege to Astrakhan and Azov, but Ivan was able to gather enough of an army to relieve both and the Russians, Russia's presence caused the Ottomans to rethink their plans, more of which in a minute. And in the end, in 1570, a formal treaty was signed, which ended the conflict and allowed the Tsar to dispatch his army back to the ongoing struggles in Livonia. The next year, the Ottomans, who having rethought their plans, formed an alliance with the Crimean Tatars and most importantly, the Nogai Horde, who, if you remember, had borne a grudge against Ivan since the 1550s, when he had failed to intercede during a period of internal strife, because the Khan hadn't handed over enough cash. So the Allies' aims were to sweep into southern Russia, take out the Cossack buffer zone, and then return back to their homelands with as many slaves as possible. And just as a side note here, slavery, and in particular the trade in Christian slaves, was one of the mainstays of the Ottoman economy, and it's estimated that about one-fifth of Istanbul's population were slaves. However, somewhere along the way, the goalposts were moved, and the raid turned into an invasion, and before long, a force of approximately 40,000 Crimeans, Nogais and Turks, whose ranks included a division of the elite ex-Christian Janissaries, were on the road towards Moscow, and upon reaching the suburbs, they decided to set a number of small fires. But May 1571 was hot, dry and windy. Yes, we have been here before. And before long, the whole city was ablaze. No one seems to be sure if the intention had been to burn down the whole of Moscow, but once they had realised what was happening, the Ottomans and their allies slipped away and left the Russians to sort out the mess. But this was easier said than done because the Great Fire of 1571 was even worse than the other Great Fire back in 1547. Historians estimate that there were between 60,000 and 200,000 casualties, which seems on the steep side to me, but there we go. And foreigners visiting the city before and after the fire describe a noticeable decrease in the city population. And even Ivan avoided the place for several years after the fire due to the lack of suitable dwellings for him and his entourage. Okay, that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Next time we'll be looking at the final part of Ivan's reign as he tries to deal with further periods of internal and external strife and, without giving too much away, things are not going to go well for either Ivan or eventually the Rurikid dynasty. Anyway, with all of that to look forward to, make sure that you stay safe, look after yourselves, keep your heads down, and I'll speak to you all soon. <laughs>